CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, I'll look at the week's news. China's economy grew at its slowest pace in nearly a decade in the third quarter as top officials sent a slew of rarely seen coordinated messages to stem a stock market sell-off driven by worries over a deepening trade war with the U.S. and weakening domestic activity. China's GDP rose 6.5% year-on-year in the July through September period, the weakest since the first quarter of 2009 when the global economy was in the depths of the financial crisis. Direct impact from the trade war on the Chinese economy has so far been limited as exports have held up, but the spat has undermined confidence, which has caused domestic demand to soften further, driving down GDP growth, analysts said. A dispute between two state-run newspapers over an interview has highlighted China's unabated fear of genetically modified food. Science and Technology Daily, the official newspaper of China's Ministry of Science and Technology, called an interview published in a Heilongjiang provincial newspaper, quote-unquote, seriously misleading, because of the interviewee's opposition to genetically modified organisms. The Chinese government has supported GMO development projects producing modified strains of rice and corn, but the public continues to be wary of the products, thanks to long-standing food safety fears rooted in the country's history of food scandals. Banking giant HSBC could become the first foreign company to list its shares in China under an initiative to link the London and Shanghai stock exchanges, giving the 153-year-old lender an opportunity to return to its roots. Europe's largest bank and the biggest overseas lender in China said it is looking at issuing Chinese depository receipts as part of the London-Shanghai Stock Connect, which is set To begin by the end of the year, the program will allow investors on both exchanges to trade stocks on each other's bourses and also allow companies listed in either city to offer shares in the other. HSBC, which was founded in Hong Kong and Shanghai in 1865, has its main listing on the London Stock Exchange with secondary listings in Hong Kong and Bermuda. It also trades in Paris and on the New York Stock Exchange. 
This isn't the first time the bank has expressed interest in listing on the mainland. It was one of the candidates slated to sell shares on a proposed international board in Shanghai aimed at attracting global companies. Regulators announced the plan in 2009, but it was quietly suspended in 2012 after the stock market fell and concerns grew that the board would suck funds from the country's other bourses. JD.com will launch a flagship online store on Google's shopping platforms to sell directly to American consumers by the end of the year, hoping to carve out a bigger U.S. footprint even as trade tensions between the U.S. and China grow. China's second largest online retailer is now preparing to set up a storefront on Google's platforms, the U.S. search giant's latest effort to get into e-commerce and earn more advertising revenue. The initiative is the first to emerge since Google bought a $550 million stake in JD earlier this year and will eventually roll out globally. JD relies on China for the vast majority of its revenue, but is counting on an international expansion to help offset slowing growth at home. A Beijing couple's discovery of a hidden camera in an apartment leased from rental agency Room has prompted public anger at a time of widespread anxiety over skyrocketing urban rents and poor protection of tenants' rights. An unnamed couple in Beijing's Chaoyang district discovered a suspicious-looking hole in a bedroom power socket across from their bed in September, according to a post published on a blog reporting on social issues set up by a former reporter of China's official Xinhua news agency. They called police, who disassembled the socket to find a hidden video camera. Police are still investigating the case. Room leases apartments from owners and renovates them before subleasing to actual tenants. The company confirmed that it had received a complaint about the pinhole camera and said it had, quote, set up a working group to coordinate with the police investigation into this case, unquote. The case marks the second time in two months that Zerum has found itself at the center of a scandal. In September, the widow of a former Zerum tenant sued the company over excessive levels of formaldehyde in her husband's apartment, which, she said, caused his death from acute myeloid leukemia. China's soccer authority is considering caps on investment player salaries, and transfer fees for the soccer season beginning in 2019. If the China Football Association puts the caps in place, they will affect both the Chinese Super League and the second-tier League A, and will crack down on, quote, signing bonuses, yin-yang contracts, and other tax-evading behavior, close quote, Xinhua reported. A so-called yin-yang contract describes a common tax evasion practice involving two contracts in which the second contract of lower value is declared to authorities. The proposed caps come after only a few years of unfettered soccer spending spurred by The proposed caps come after only a few years of unfettered soccer spending spurred by Chinese President Xi Jinping's wish for China to become a world soccer superpower by 2050. And for this week's Movers and Shakers section, who got promoted and who got detained? Wu Fulin will become a vice president at Bank of China. Wu is currently a member of the party committee and vice general manager at China Everbright Bank. Wu will join a bank that is running low on vice presidents. Zhang Qingsong left for the Export-Import Bank of China, and Liu Chang left to join the Shandong Provincial Government. Wu had been at Everbright for many years and has a doctorate in economics from Fudan University. 
Guo Ningning, the first female vice president of Agricultural Bank of China, will become a vice governor of a province. We don't know which one yet. There's something of a trend in big banks' senior management heading out to the provinces to help them beef up their financial regulation. And in corruption, more details from the former bad bank boss Lai Xiaomin case has emerged, and it's all rather excessive. Three metric tons of cash, 100 mistresses, and a carefully cultivated provincial power base in Jiangxi, in China's south. China's former internet czar Liu Wei admitted in court Friday to accepting 4.6 million U.S. dollars in bribes. Liu was the chief of the Cyberspace Administration of China and deputy publicity minister until he stepped down in 2016. He was placed under investigation in November. The Supreme People's Procuratorate on Friday ordered the arrest of Zhang Shaochun, former vice minister of the Ministry of Finance, and the third official who has held this position to face corruption allegations. Zhang was dismissed from public office and expelled from the party in late September. And a flurry of other corruption-related developments emerged this week. Bai Xiangqun, vice governor of the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region, was dismissed from office and expelled from the party. Ai Wenli, former vice chairman of the Hebei Provincial Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, was expelled from the party. The SPP ordered the arrest of Wang Xiaoguang, the former vice governor of Southwest China's Guizhou Province, who was expelled from the party in late September. Let's turn now, as we do each week, to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors for a closer look at some of the big stories in the news. First up is David Curtin, reporter for Caixin Global. David, we've got a G20 related story that involves China's state-owned enterprises. Um, lay, lay this out for us, will you? So last week saw the meeting of the Business Twenty. This is a group of private businesses that support the Group of Twenty, the G Twenty, which is when the leaders of the world's top economies gather together to discuss the, the world's biggest problems. And the B Twenty put forward、uh, this quite clear criticism of、uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises. Uh, saying that the world's top leaders, when they meet, they need to devise a system to deal with、uh, subsidies and state support for state-owned enterprises. Now, what happened after that is where this gets interesting for China. So, the day after at an IMF meeting,、uh, Yi Gang, the、uh, chief of People's Bank of China, China's central bank,、uh, started using the term they use to、uh, describe what the world needs, which is competitive neutrality. So they rolled out a new term that they hadn't used before. Well, this term has been around for a while, but it's normally for private companies、uh, making sure they have a level playing field with state-owned enterprises. That's how it's been used. China starts to use it,、uh, saying, you know, it's interested in using this concept. But what happens then is two days later,、uh, the chief of Sasac, which runs China's biggest state-owned enterprises,、uh, tries to flip this on its head. He says at a press conference that、uh, actually Chinese companies have been playing by market rules for a long time. The world needs to acknowledge this, and what it doesn't want to see is the world trying to set up discriminatory rules for state-owned enterprises. It wants competitive neutrality in the sense that 
state-owned enterprises have a level playing field with private companies. So what's why this is interesting is that uh, when the G20 meets at the end of November, it looks like there's already going to be a showdown between countries saying that China has unfairly supported its companies, whether this is you know uh, subsidies for the steel sector, there's all those complaints about China flooding the world with China steel and aluminium. China seems to be trying to grasp the conversation itself, trying to say, well, maybe Chinese companies, because of it being state-owned enterprises, are being discriminated against. So it's trying to seize the initiative and steal that conversation. These major meetings, the G20s, other organizations, uh, they've been around for a while now, as have some of these concepts, as you say. Uh, But why is this application of competitive neutrality happening now at this particular time? Well, it seems like, uh, I mean, this has been around for a long time. You're right. But uh, at the moment with uh, Trump's um, campaign against the Chinese economy, I think more countries are feeling emboldened that this is their moment really to take action against China. And so we've seen across the world, countries are tightening their investment regime. So it's much harder for Chinese companies to go in. That's partly over security fears, but it's also over fears that, you know, the Chinese state can offer endless resources to back its companies, whereas uh, private companies can't compete. So it seems that this is just a real moment for that crunch showdown. The Chinese economy is uh, doing relatively less well. There's issues in the stock market. Growth is slowing slightly. Um, and so, yeah, this seems to be the, the real moment to, to bring this issue to a head. And it's going to be very interesting to see how China responds to that. Thanks, David. We'll check in with you in November and see how it goes. Great. Cheers. Next up is Doug Young, Managing Editor at Caixin Global. Uh, Doug, it looks like you have a few stories this week on energy in China. Can you lay out the first one for our listeners? Basically, the big story is that China is really trying to switch over from coal power to natural gas as one of its main new energy supplies. And the reason being is natural gas is much cleaner than coal. So this switchover has has come with a lot of growing pains. And so the big story this week that I, I thought would be fun to focus in on is uh, ExxonMobil has become sort of the latest company to jump on this bandwagon. They've just signed a huge deal to supply liquefied natural gas, which is basically the liquid form of, of natural gas. It's used so they can ship it and store it because it's much more compact than the actual gas. Um, they've signed this big uh, 20-year deal to supply a million tons of, of liquefied natural gas each year to China. This is a huge amount of gas, you know, be able to produce all kinds of electricity. But again, the bigger story is that China has actually become the world's biggest, they call it LNG, liquefied natural gas. They've become the world's biggest LNG importer uh, recently. And it's it's really been quite a phenomenon. It's actually had some repercussions with the US too, because the US is one of their biggest suppliers. And that's been hit by the trade war as well. So how practical is this transition? As far as I know, you know, infrastructure in China still is largely dependent on coal, which holds special importance, especially as we move into winter. Well, it has been hard. And and like I said, there were a lot of hiccups last year because a lot of uh, places didn't have, well, actually last year during winter, uh, a lot of places that did have natural gas capacity to, to make natural gas heat they got stuck because there wasn't enough LNG. So uh, they actually had to, to divert supplies from industrial use companies, and it, it created havoc there. Another issue that came up last year was that a lot of people who used to burn coal like at their homes to, to heat their homes, because you know China doesn't exactly have the most advanced infrastructure, especially at smaller towns, 
they were ordered to basically dismantle their coal burning, you know, coal burning heat sources because they were supposed to get new natural gas heat. And that new infrastructure was incomplete. So they basically didn't have the capacity yet to get the gas generated heat, but they'd also dismantled the coal sources under orders sort of from local governments because they were under. And so these people were all getting frozen. uh, And it was a big issue last year. So this year, they've taken a much more measured approach. They've sort of ordered uh, the, the central leaders have ordered local governments not to be so draconian and be flexible. But, you know, there's a lot more natural gas coming into the system. And, and hopefully a lot of this infrastructure is in place now. So we won't have the same sorts of hiccups last year. But, you know, inevitably, there's going to be some trouble because there's there's not the infrastructure for storing the stuff, transporting it, and so forth. So uh, if you're living in China, especially in the countryside, uh, you might want to get an extra blanket or two and, and perhaps an extra parka. Good advice for our throngs of rural Chinese listeners, I guess. Uh, so for all those agrarian podcast aficionados out there in the provinces, uh, story number two is about a refinery being backed financially by Saudi Arabia's flagship SOE, Saudi Aramco. Uh, is that correct? What's the gist of the story? Pretty straightforward. It's basically just a $25 billion petrochemical processing plant or refining plant. And uh, the big news was that Saudi Aramco uh, showed up Saudi Aramco is is the big oil producer, basically, of Saudi Arabia, which Saudi Arabia is the world's biggest oil exporter, and, and said they were going to plunk down 9% of the investment for this, which isn't too shabby. It would be like $2 billion or something like that. And and speaking of that, the, the interesting angle in this particular story is that Saudi Arabia is investing this big chunk of change in this new Chinese refinery because uh, Saudi Arabia is very, very concerned that, that they're, they're being challenged right now by Russia. China and Russia are getting very cozy in terms of political relationship, but also Russia's China's neighbor, and they're building these big pipelines and sea transport routes for Russia to, to basically ship natural gas and oil and and everything to China. And, and Saudi Arabia is quite worried because China used to import well, they still do import big amounts of oil and gas from Saudi Arabia. But, you know, now that they're building all these projects and trying to step things up in Russia and things are getting a little cozier with Russia, Saudi Arabia is becoming a little more proactive and, and you know, sort of trying to get its fingers in more China projects, make more China investments to make sure, you know, its interests are protected in China. And so this event, the signing of the 9% deal, was this part of that? Yeah. So, I mean, they've been making, Saudi Arabia has been much more active about making investments in China. And actually, when when Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco, the company was going to do an IPO last year that ultimately fell apart. It was supposed to be the biggest IPO of all time. And I believe they actually had recruited China, one of some Chinese entity to be a big investor in that IPO because it was going to be billions and billions of dollars. But you know, Saudi Arabia is trying to do its best to make sure China's hooked on their, you know, on their investment and their oil and their gas and all this stuff. So this 9% investment sort of the latest extension of that broader policy of like, get them hooked on our stuff. Doug, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. And we'll probably talk to you again next week. Okay, thanks, Kaiser. Thank you, Doug. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. 
The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Check out our new show, the China Econ Talk podcast, as well as our flagship current affairs show, Seneca. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care. Music